years ago now, I had the opportunity to go to Sun Mo for the first time. I translated a book by Bo Chao Kun Uttatat and um, I took the manuscript with me to offer to him and to discuss one or two of the passages about which I wasn't um, too confident. And I had some uh, wonderful conversations with him. And I also enjoyed very much sitting and listening while he spoke to various people who came to pay respects to him. And uh, I'm, I was reminded earlier this evening um, of one particular gentleman who came looking rather exasperated and said, Lung Po, what can I do? My mind is so agitated. And poor Buddha Dasat said, well, stop agitating it. And that was all he was saying. I, I really liked this answer because uh, we tend to assume that um, the negative mental states, the defilements are like afflictions, uh, things that um, take over our mind and uh, oppress us, cause us suffering. Whereas it's very important uh, to recognize the, the volition and the... Um, the eternal internal assent or consent to 
these negative mental states. I've been talking um, last few days to various people about the meaning of the word forgiveness. So it's a very interesting word. What do we actually mean when we say we forgive someone? As when we say I forgive you, that means I'm, I'm, de- I've made a determination. I've made a decision. It's a volitional act. But we can't um, decide not to feel something. We can't say I am no longer going to be angry with you. I'm no longer going to feel hurt and offended by your actions. In in Pali language and in, in Thai the word is apaya or apai, which means um, without paya, which means um, danger or harm. So, I would suggest the meaning of giving forgiveness or giving a pyre means that you reassure the person, persons who have hurt you or offended you that you will not seek revenge upon them, uh, either through body or through speech. That's something that you can uh, decide upon, you can make a promise and Buddhist morality is founded upon this ability to um, forego or to refuse to act upon certain impulses. We can stand back from our instincts and evaluate them and decide whether or not acting upon them is consistent with our ideals, our goals, our principles. And so we we give forgiveness by saying that no matter how angry and hurt and offended I feel, um, I will not try to make you suffer as payment, not take revenge. But internally, we can't say, I will no longer feel angry with you. I'll no longer feel hurt or offended. But what we can do, the commitment that we can make, is not to welcome those thoughts in our mind, not to give them a harbor, not to take them up and proliferate them, not to make a story out of them, not to indulge in them. This is where the volition um, takes or doesn't take uh, its part. So volitions in the mind um, can do have a part to play and they 
condition the arising of mindfulness. Our mindfulness is um, often taught these days as a um, general awareness and ability to be in the present moment. When you're eating, just eat. When you're walking, just walking. Whatever you're doing, just doing that and not allowing extraneous thoughts and emotions from um, taking control of the mind. But uh, mindfulness or sati needs to have clearly defined objects for it to be really effective. And determining not to indulge in thoughts of anger and hatred and ill will cannot prevent those thoughts from arising. We shouldn't feel guilty if those thoughts do arise. But it makes the mind sharp and it allows the awareness of our principles, of our goals, and so on, to arrive in the mind in time to prevent the creation of the manokamma. So we have kamma um, created through action, through speech, um, but the, the kind of kamma created in the mind is called manokamma. And through being aware of the impulse to think in unkind, harsh, judgmental, violent ways, recognizing it as just that, a conditioned impulse, and refusing the, um, to give it a home, to give it a seat, to give it a place at the table. This is a way that mindfulness is able to cut off the manokamma. So mindfulness is not in itself a, um, a member of the uh, wisdom group of virtues, but it um, provides the uh, space, the ability to use wisdom. Now the impulses, the angry thoughts which um, still arise from time to time as the result of previous experiences, not being fed by that interest and attention and indulgence, start to wither. Um, just as muscles which are unused start to atrophy. So violent, angry thoughts atrophy when we don't give them that attention and importance that they crave. So although uh, we are not um, eliminating our capacity to hate 
or to um, think violent thoughts as such, we are dealing quite effectively with this particular kind of um, thought or this particular theme or the emotions uh, brought about by some unfortunate event or action. So, in daily life, we can use this same kind of idea or, or principle as a way of creating more effective and penetrative awareness in our daily life. Say, uh, taking the case of metta pavana, or loving-kindness meditation in daily life. Now, there are a number of misunderstandings about this practice. And one is to see metta as kind of universal um, love, that um, that kind of metta is realizable, but it's a very um, high level of practice. But what is more practical is the cultivation of a sense of um, goodwill or well-wishing to all beings. Now, many people um, complain that it's impossible to send feelings of metta to um, bad people or people who behave very selfish, unkind ways. It seems um, a contradiction in terms to want to wish someone who is behaving badly to be happy. The, the mistake or the fallacy um, is to assume that um, one spreading metta wants someone to be happy while still acting in that way or to find happiness from acting in that way. It's not the case. When we see somebody behaving um, badly, then we understand that they are creating bad karma. And they themselves will receive the fruits of that karma sometime in the future. And so the way that we can develop metta meditation towards such people is to wish them free of that habit, that behavior, that way of looking at the world. So if they're very, we find somebody very selfish, then we wish them to know the happiness of unselfishness. If they're very violent, then we wish them to know the happiness of nonviolence and kindness. So rather than taking the particular 
habit, behavior of that person um, to be the obstacle to sending them thoughts of loving kindness or metta, we take it as the focus. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that person could be free of that defilement, could be could let go of that kind of behavior, how wonderful it would be, both for them and for their families and for all that know them. In a busy city, metta meditation um, is a wonderful practice, um, but rather than just making it of a generic may all beings be happy we can be more specific um, sometimes we can um, make up the the wish as we go along it's, just, it's a little bit tiring but it's very um, fulfilling so we see somebody is very um, very anxious we say oh may you be free of all anxiety see someone who's very impatient and, uh, and irritable and you wish them may they be free of their impatience may they know the happiness of patience um, and so you can tailor or customize your wish uh, to the people that you pass on the street or you see out of the uh, window of your vehicle or you may have um, a list of dhammas. If you if you've studied the dhamma, and you have you know some of these lists of defilements and hindrances, lists of virtues, then you can use those. It's a good revision. Um, so uh, if you take the five hindrances to meditation, then the first person may you be free uh, from the hindrance um, of sensual indulgence. So you may be, that person may they be free from the hindrance of ill will. May that person be free from, uh, from laziness and drowsiness. May that person be free from agitation. May that person be free from doubt. May this person find the joy of faith. May this person yeah, enjoy the fruits of vigor and energy. So you can, rather than making it mechanical um, and uh, superficial, um, you can experience a lot of joy by making it more intentional and more specific. And this same, um, this same kind of style of practice um, can be employed throughout the day. Now, many people, uh, I think most most of us will pay um, lip service to the idea of you know, development within the meditation uh, form of sitting and walking and also in daily life. But uh, still, um, for most meditators, there's a huge gap, a chasm, between the experience in 
sitting with the eyes closed and um, performing one's uh, duties and fulfilling responsibilities in daily life. But uh, one way of, of bridging this gap, at least through, through um, a more um, a suitable understanding of what we're trying to accomplish as meditators, um, I, um, I would suggest you look again at these four right efforts. This is the Noble Eightfold Path, the Samawayama. In, in meditation, um, it's not that we're striving to uh, get rid of things in order to get something else which is better. The meditation practice is um, an education. It's an exploration. It's an education. What we are trying to accomplish in meditation is learning certain very important life skills. The first life skill is how to protect the mind from unwholesome or, unwholesome or toxic mental states. Second life skill is um, in the occasions when our mind has been um, taken over and we're under the sway of these toxic negative mental states or defilements um, we're, we're trying to learn the life skill how to deal most effectively um, with those mental states how to reduce them how to eliminate them we're seeking to develop the life skills, how, of de how to develop all of the beautiful and noble mental states that human beings have the capacity to develop within themselves. And lastly, we're seeking to develop the ability uh, to take care of these beautiful, noble mental states, to cultivate them, to care for them, to bring them to maturity. So to do this, we begin by giving the mind work. So meditation is, um, if you like, it's, a, it's work, but it's work in the in the Thai meaning rather than the uh, the Western meaning. What I mean by that is in, in Western languages we tend to make um, this clear distinction between work and play. Work hard, play hard. You work and then you, uh, after you've worked and you've suffered, then you deserve a reward, a rest. Um, in in the Thai language, although um, the Western way of thinking is uh, almost uh, taken over now, uh, the word ngan, 
doesn't have that same kind of grim connotation as work has. We have a ngan wat and a ngan, all kinds of ngan. So working in a job is a ngan, uh, but going to a fete and a ceremony and uh, uh, having a good time is ngan as well. So the uh, meditation is ngan rather than work, um, unless you can redefine that uh, word work. What happens when you have this work and play idea about meditation is that you start off and your mind's agitated. It's going off into the past, into the future, and it's this and it's that. Um, and you get discouraged, frustrated. Um, and if you're someone who's often very purposeful or very industrious and you're used to putting forth effort and then getting a result for that effort, then meditation uh, can be very difficult. It doesn't, um, uh, it doesn't work that easily. Now, what happens then is that if someone perseveres, keeps going, and the agitation gradually dissipates, less and less agitation, and you get a feeling of kind of pleasant, fuzzy, peaceful, nice feeling. And so if you're in the work-play mode, then you think, oh, that's just my reward. I've done all the hard work, and now I'm in a really nice, pleasant mental state. And so you just settle back, you know, just like rest back. Ah, oh, this is nice. This is so relaxing. Um, and then you you start to feel sleepy um, because the essential element of any kind of meditation at every stage of meditation is wakefulness and clarity. The word Buddha means um, the awakened one. The quality, the Buddha quality of heart is that awakened quality. So meditation is one of seeking to be awake, awake to what's going on. So to begin with, the, the landscape, the internal landscape, is a very busy and agitated one. So your job is to be awake to that. And as that falls away, you're awake to that um, sense of calm. But if you indulge in that, and you just think, oh, this is it, now I've got my reward for um, struggling through all that agitation, then your meditation will just come to a uh, dead end. So you come out of a meditation and you feel kind of kind of nice, you know, it's like you just had a, a nap. Um, but that's not what meditation is about. Uh, it has a relaxing function, but that's not the goal of meditation. That's one of the the perks, the side effects, but it's not what meditation is about. And if, uh, for those of you who have been meditating uh, for some time, then uh, I would suggest this is a, uh, a good uh, test 
of whether your meditation is on the right track or not. As to say, after the meditation is over um, and you're um, gone out of your meditation room or your uh, your meditation corner and now you're starting to interact with other people and and perform various uh, duties if you just have that pleasant kind of fuzzy feeling like you just had a nap then that's probably uh, not a good sign but if your mind feels very sharp and bright and particularly sensitive to impermanence and particularly sensitive to the causal nature of, of things around you, things are just happening according to causes and conditions. This is a sign that, that the meditation is progressing. So um, going back to the um, this basic structure of the four right efforts that I mentioned a few minutes ago, you, we give the mind this um, task to be fully present, to be awake, to appreciate um, the breath. And that immediately stirs up resistance from the mind. And it exposes the various defilements or hindrances which are already present in your mind. They're not being created through the meditation process, but they're being exposed and illuminated by it. So, um, when we start to meditate and there's agitation and anxiety and, and uh, turbulence in the mind, that does not mean that you're doing something wrong or you're not very good at this is exactly what's meant to happen. Um, it's, this is how we get to know what's really going on in our mind. These hindrances are arising, passing away, influencing, undermining our lives all of the time. But in our daily life, um, we lack the clarity, the time, to really isolate these hindrances and to uh, find ways of dealing with them. So one way of, of understanding meditation um, would be to compare it to uh, putting the mind under a microscope and seeing all the viruses which are affecting it. So we are seeking to learn about all the ways in which we agitate our mind, to use uh, Lumpur Puttatasa's simile or, or, or idiom. So we're seeking to understand how this desire to enjoy memories and imagination, the, the, the warm, pleasant, fuzzy feeling we get when we have a... Um, a pleasant train of thought in our mind, how, how much that is an automatic response to um, nothing going on, this, uh, this desire to have something, anything, just to have this basic sense of 
um, pleasure in the mind as a way to insulate it from real life. And this is a habit that we all have, um, the desire to escape from what we don't like. Sometimes we can do that in the normal, obvious way physically removing ourselves from a situation, um, but more insidious and harder to observe is the way that when we feel uncomfortable in any way, anxious, upset, we reach for some pleasant thought, some pleasant memory, um, anything that um, gives us just a little um, hit of pleasure. So it could be uh, something very uh, coarse and basic, like sexual desires and sexual perceptions and memories and imagination. But it could be um, just thinking about the things we like. And it could be things thinking about politics, could be thinking about sport, could be thinking about movies, thinking about food, um, anything at all that... Um, we bring into our mind just to give us a little bit of hit of pleasure when we uh, find it difficult to be in the present moment. This is so natural and automatic that we don't recognize it in daily life very easily. But in meditation, through giving our mind the task to be with the breath, then it becomes more obvious to us. We say, oh yeah, this is what our mind likes to do. When we get bored with the breath, this is what the mind likes to do. This is where it likes to go. And uh, sometimes um, it follows the path of dislike and ill will and aversion. And it can be... Um, memory of somebody who we don't like or something they've said or something they've done uh, or it can be just general sense of dissatisfaction and find fault finding we can always find fault in anything anywhere um, the more the more um, educated you are probably the, the better you are at finding fault in things and it's a, it's a habit, and it's a dwelling in that aversion. And when you're dwelling in, in aversion, you know, it feels like you're being uh, quite smart and incisive and observant. And that sort of cynical um, uh, mind is always, always, it's a proud mind. It thinks people who, whenever we're cynical, we always think we're being smarter than people who are not cynical. But it can also be that, uh, ill will turned inwards, ill will at ourselves, unable to do this, um, not, not able to be the kind of person we want to be, the kind of meditator we think we should be, and so on. And so the meditation practice uh, uh, allows us to see this as a mental habit that we are creating and sustaining ourselves. We are creating this. We don't have to. So the 
dullness and sleepiness mind, uh, we can see is very much a um, is very much conditioned by how much of our sense of well-being in life is based upon stimulation. The more in your daily life you jump from one stimulus to another, then the less you're able to bear the lack of stimulus. So in meditation, we're reducing stimuli to absolute minimum and seeing, can you be awake when there's nothing prodding you or exciting you or exciting your emotions and passions? This is a real challenge. But seeing how the mind also when we maybe come into contact with certain things that we don't like, we don't want to see, um, that we can follow the path of dullness, just make the mind dull, turn it off, so we don't have to see that. See how, how agitation is running from here to there. Is, and it's, it's not so different from the kind of behavior we see from uh, people who are newly bereaved. You know, after someone's you love's died and you just want to do this and do that, have something, anything going all the time, just so you don't have to be with the, the experience of bereavement. But that's not so different from uh, the monkey mind that, um, uh, with which most of us live most of the time. Then there is uh, skeptical doubt. Doubt is a recognition that we lack information. Um, is not um, a hindrance of mind. But when we have all the information we need, but we uh, refuse to make a commitment or take any kind of risk without some sure knowledge that it's de definitely and necessarily going to work out well, this is a hindrance of mind. So in meditation, we're see trying to find ways to prevent those hindrances from arising, to protect the mind from them, but also to develop skillful means of dealing with them when they do arise. So we, we're looking particularly in terms of the hindrances. The, uh, the wholesome dhammas, the noble, the beautiful dhammas that we seek to develop, specifically in meditation, um, are, um, are usually... Um, uh, expressed in terms of what we call the bojangas or the enlightenment factors. So mindfulness, investigation of dhammas, meaning that appreciation of uh, what is present in the, in the mind as being helpful or harmful, uh, something to be developed or abandoned, then effort and sense of joy and well-being happiness and, and uh, focus and stability of mind, and equanimity of mind. There are all these various um, wholesome dhammas which we seek to develop. Now in daily life, um, I would suggest we're doing exactly the same thing. And our ability to do that same thing uh, is very much enhanced when we are looking in a very uh, uh, focused uh, and profound way at the 
movements in the mind, workings of the mind in meditation. We develop a familiarity with the defilements. We, we begin to know um, how they arise. We know what they feel like when they're arisen. We know what they, uh, how to deal with them effectively. So having that intimate knowledge of the negative and positive mental states, then we are able to practice um, more effectively in daily life. So we can um, make ourselves, create for ourselves specific goals. Uh, for instance, um, uh, we think, yes, today I'm going um, to a meeting and uh, that person is going to be in the meeting and every time I have to sit and listen to him talk, I get so irritated. Um, so we make a specific intention. Today I'm going to protect my mind. I'm not going to allow the defilement of irritation to arise um, in the presence of an irritating person. Now we can recognize a person as being irritating without having to be irritated by them. We can uh, recognize things coming at us through the eyes, ears, nose, things which are encouraging us to be greedy, encouraging us to be heedless, encouraging us to be um, jealous, encouraging us to be irritated or upset. But those things are not uh, forcing us. They can't make us. Uh, greedy, heedless, selfish, um, unkind, and so on and so forth. Um, we have the capacity within ourselves to recognize the nature of phenomena, but not to go out and grasp onto them and make something out of them. And so the, the sharpness of mind, that ability to recognize um, this as something which is encouraging us, it's asking us, it's demanding us uh, to uh, reply with a negative emotion. This is when the mindfulness comes up. And if we can recognize in advance or prepare ourselves in advance for particular challenges or particular qualities we want to develop, uh, then we will um, we will find some progress. So the inner uh, is supporting the outer, and the more of the outer uh, work we do, when we come to meditate, there's less, um, uh, less stuff we have to work through, and where the mind is prepared. And one of the reasons why sense restraint um, is emphasized so much is that Without sense restraint, we just create so much unnecessary work for ourselves that when we come to meditate, there's so many memories and thoughts and things that are just churning around in our mind, which don't have to be there. They're only there because we didn't take care of our eyes and our ears and our nose and our tongue in our daily life. So we're living um, in a world now where there is... Uh, so much information and there is 
a huge development in the number of ways in which we can distract ourselves. So this is the, you know, the nekama parami, the, uh, the modern practice of nekama parami or renunciation, you know, is the renunciation of the trivial, renunciation of the superficial, renunciation of the needlessly distracting. Because there's so many things these days that are enjoyable, they're not really uh, bad in any normal sense of the word, but they eat up our time. And if they eat up our time, they're eating up our lives. And the amount of time um, that we spend now on superficial distractions um, is, has increased exponentially. And so we need to have some kind of um, self-examination and self-questioning. And one of the very simple words and reflections um, that the Buddha gave us is, um, how much is enough? Or how much is podi? So in, and we apply that questioning answer to every aspect of our lives. Um, how much, uh, what kind of food, how much rest, how much exercise, how much uh, internet, how much line, how much this, how much, and just answering that question, how much, is enough, how much is the optimum amount, then we are necessarily um, into an examination of what's all this for anyway? Because we can only decide what, you know, what's the optimum amount of this and that when we have some ultimate goal or purpose. Because the the right amount or the optimum amount or, or, or podi is that which is consistent with the realization of our goals or the actualization of our principles and ideals. So we have to stand back from just a sense of whether or not we're enjoying something and putting it into a larger context framework of our whole life and not just right now, today, but in terms of the years to come. What kind of habits are we creating little by little um, through our daily actions of body, speech, and mind? Are these the kinds of habits that we really want to be creating? So that ability to stand back um, and evaluate and choose um, those things that we want to um, be experiencing and those things that we need to um, remove ourselves from. This is very important. And with so much screaming at us and clawing at us and telling us uh, that they're important, that we need to have that still spot within, within us um, that we can um, 
be awake to what's going on in our lives, not just what's going on right now in this moment, but seeing things in their in their context. And that that ability to stop and and evaluate and and in the moral sphere, in the social sphere, and this is a, a practice of empathy, ability to uh, put ourselves in other shoes and see the world as others see it. Um, in terms of reducing the amount of social conflict, this is absolutely vital. Now, how is it that um, someone can see their actions as being rational and reasonable? You know, often we say, why? You know, how? But these are rhetorical questions. We're not often, we don't really, uh, you know, looking for an answer. We just want to express this frustration, meaning what? How can people be so stupid? Why can't people be as intelligent as me or me and my friends? Um, but really looking into this, obviously people assume that their actions are rational. They don't feel that they're unreasonable. So how can what can seem irrational to us seem rational to others? Um, learning to um, put your own views and opinions and desires and fears to one side and try it very humbly to put yourself in other's shoes. But with all these practices, you always have to be careful. You know, there's always a way of, of justifying ourselves or twisting Dhamma teachings for our own, uh, our own benefit. I, I remember hearing about one man who um, found, he's in New York, I think, and he found like $100 uh, on the pavement. And, you know, so should I take it or shouldn't I take it? And then he said, well, I'll put myself um, in, the, in, the, in the shoes and the thoughts of the person who lost that. I said, well, how would I feel if I'd lost $100 on the pavement? And he said, well, I thought, well, I think I, I, I'd like to have a lesson taught for being so mindless. I think I would like the money to disappear so I would learn to be more heedful in the future. And so he decided it was all right to take money. <clears throat> so we can take any, any kind of uh, Dhamma teaching, even, even something um, as uh, humane and important as empathy, and twist it if we're not careful. And so many um, Dhamma teachings are twisted in this way and... Uh, quoted to legitimize uh, people's defilements. This is why we need good friends and people and being um, creating uh, friendships and communities in which we can speak to each other and tell each other things that we'd rather not hear sometimes. Um, and often. Uh, people will say, you know, if you see anything, you know, so just please tell me. But nobody really believes that the person is being sincere. And you have to really demonstrate that you're genuinely interested to receive feedback. Um, because why? Because we all have blind spots. We all take our own side. We all think we're we're right most of the time. And 
this is why we need good friends. And good friends are not people who just flatter us, but uh, who are willing uh, to tell us things we don't want to hear. And we should be considered that a part of our own um, role as friends to find the right time and place and gently and kindly and sensitively with respect uh, letting people know uh, when their behavior and their, uh, their conduct um, is, um, is worrying to us for what reasons. So uh, the love of truth is um, something that we need to promote and not making um, any compromises with that. It doesn't mean to be blunt and outspoken, uh, but it means caring for the truth. Um, when something's just uh, a view, an opinion, a belief, um, then we recognize that. It's not necessarily the truth. We see it to be the truth. We believe it to be the truth, but we don't claim that we know it's the truth unless it's a direct experience. And this is, uh, in, in the Pali language, it's called Satchanuraka, caring for the truth. Um, the, um, there's a nice story of um, uh, two great, the great Greek philosophers. And um, in ancient Greece, the, the king would uh, go to visit the philosophers and discuss philosophy with them and... These two uh, philosophers were great friends, but one of the philosophers um, would flatter the king when he came around. And of course, the king liked that and started to offer gifts and gold. And, and so the, this philosopher became rather wealthy and uh, was able to move into a nice house and have very good meals every day and so on. Whereas his friend... Um, would never flatter anybody. And so he was still living in relative poverty. And one day the rich philosopher went round to visit his friend. And uh, all his friend could give him for, for a meal was bean soup, which in ancient Greece was like the, the meal uh, for poor people's food. And so his, his friend sort of trying to drink drink this soup with some distaste. And he said, you know, you're so stubborn. You know, if you were just to um, flatter the king just a little bit, you know, you could be um, living a lot better than this and you wouldn't have to eat, drink bean soup every day. And his friend said, no, you, you've got it all wrong. And I, in fact, I was just going to tell you um, that if you learned how to enjoy bean soup, you wouldn't have to flatter the king every day. Uh, so it is very um, different attitudes, you know, what's, what's important and what's not important. But the, uh, that love of truth and that search for truth, um, that search for authenticity, this is what we're trying to express in our meditation practice. We don't know the truth. Uh, we are, our, our, our hearts and minds are clouded. There are defilements affecting the, the, uh, the things that we uh, 
that we perceive, our understanding of them, our interpretation of them, our actions of them. And without this work of meditation, shining the light within and learning through the application of meditation techniques, all these important life skills, um, then we'll never, we'll never be free of that. We'll never realize um, the truth of things. And to realize the truth of things is the most um, wonderful experience for any living being. So the inner and the outer have to be in harmony when you're meditating and uh, it's your mind is just full of thoughts and emotions and uh, cloudy and dull and it's not necessarily um, an indication that you've got the wrong meditation object or that you're hopeless. It may well be that there are uh, real uh, imbalances in your daily life. So there are uh, insights about daily life to be gained from meditation and in the same way uh, through trying to uh, protect the mind from the unwholesome, reduce, eliminate the unwholesome, create wholesome dhammas and sustain and nurture them in daily life, then we get, we find ways and we create supports uh, for the more profound work of formal meditation. So I would like to uh, offer this discourse to you this evening. <clears throat> 